Good morning. It's my joy today to get to share some good news. You may have uh, already heard about it or read it in the bulletin, but Kevin and Nicole LeRae were baptized this week. If y'all will make your way on down here, we have a wonderful tradition of giving every new Christian a, a Bible, and we like to say a special prayer for them. So we're inviting Kevin and Nicole and also their two girls to come down here tell you a little bit about them. They've been visiting with us since about last summer, uh, and so many of you know them already, and they've made their decision. Y'all come on around here so everybody can uh, look and, and see, and you can see them too. Uh, Kevin's a retired police officer um, with the New York City, and Nicole works at Columbia Academy. Uh, Priscilla's in sixth grade, and Nicole is in fourth grade. So it's a little combination of celebrating their baptism, but also welcoming them to the church. Um, we've got here a Bible for both of you. And then uh, Jeff White, one of our elders, wants to say a special prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord in heaven, thank you so much for sending this good family our way. We are so thrilled to have all four of them, Kevin, Nicole, Allison, and Priscilla. We're thrilled that they've come our way, and they have such an interesting story about how they got to our part of the country and how they got to West 7th, and now they are they are absolutely a part of our church family, and we are thrilled with that. Lord, we're, we're honored by their presence, and by their, we're inspired by their, their faithful obedience to the gospel. Uh, that's such an encouragement to all of us, and, and uh, we hope that we, as we just sang, we will bind ourselves together with cords of love that will last many, many years, that we can be there for them when they have a need, we can celebrate together and just enjoy life as brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, bless them, help them to feel comfortable here, help us to reach out and make sure that they have a place and, and help them to be confident and find a place and, and get to work. There's so much good that happens here and we want them to absolutely be part of that. Lord, bless everyone who's here today and there were times when many of us were, were in this position. It's such an exciting time, and we ask that you just prick that memory and think of what it was like uh, after coming up out of that water and, and thinking about the, the newness of life that we are promised. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this family, and thank you for our church family that now includes them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's just so good. A um, couple of things before we get into the, to the message. Uh, two weeks ago, we had Super Service Sunday. Uh, we didn't even mention that last week, and that's my oversight. I guess I was so eager to jump into the lesson. But what a great thing. So many of you participated, going to visit and to encourage, to send notes, uh, doing the very thing that Brad was mentioning about uh, an opportunity to, to show love and to encourage. And thank you for that. That uh, that was a big deal, a lot that happened that day, that afternoon, and we've already received so many uh, good comments and cards and, and feedback. Uh, look forward to doing that again. Uh, today is our special contribution. Uh, it's kind of a, a quiet thing. We've not made a big splash, but uh, your generosity is to be commended. And if you look on the front of the bulletin, you see the many good works that are uh, a part of today's collection. And if you weren't prepared for that or if you want to give more, you can still do that. Uh, even in this next week, just send another check or make another uh, donation, but mark it for this special contribution so it can go 
um, Healing Hands, Nashville Inner City Ministry, Disaster Relief, World Christian Broadcasting, Nicaragua Christian School, Mary Christian Camp, they're all included in that. Of course, the bulk of it is going to go to the Tennessee Children's Home. This is our third of our fourth year commitment to give $50,000 each year. They've had a whole a really big relocation project, and, and we as the uh, inaugural church is trying to do all we can to help. So just a lot of good with that. Uh, also call your attention tonight, we're going to have uh, our monthly Connect um, it's going to be a night of prayer. Um, this is always a highlight. Those who are able to come uh, are always talking about how wonderful it is just to, to gather and to pray with others. And we're going to do that tonight. That starts at 5 o'clock in our teen center. I'd love for you to be a part of that. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. A woman wrote to J. Vernon McGee. Mr. McGee, our preacher said that Jesus just faked his death on the cross. He didn't really die. The disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? J. Vernon McGee replied like this, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a heavy whip 39 times, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, then run a spear through his heart, and place him in an airless tomb for three days and tell me what happens. This morning, I want us to consider one more person whom Jesus showed grace and truth and how transforming it truly was. We're going to be in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, if you want to follow along. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, there were disciples there where, for the, uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. I want in our lesson today to note five things about Thomas. If you've got a bulletin, you'll see an outline there. The first two we're going to observe on this first Sunday, this first day of the week. And then the last three occurs a week later, eight days later. So we're going to see five things about Thomas. So let's begin first by realizing Thomas was not present with the others. And that's just simply it. Thomas was not there. And that's a key detail to this story. But why wasn't he with the others? The Bible doesn't really tell us, so we're not sure why. But again, his absence is key to the story. Some speculate he was despondent. He was still grieving the death of Jesus. He loved him so. He was so overwhelmed at his death that he was just, he wasn't there. Maybe he'd gone out for a long walk, one author said. He'd been with the group, he just stepped out at that moment and he missed out. Or maybe he was just overwhelmed with disappointment. Just so discouraged. Maybe all this talk that Jesus had shared for three years about this kingdom was just that, was just talk, and, and he wasn't sure what to believe. Maybe he'd already moved on. 
Maybe he was contemplating, what's my next step now that Jesus is dead? What do I do with my life? Whatever the reason, he missed out on something big. Have you ever noticed how much of life seems to be the same day in, day out, just routine? It can be the same at school, it can be the same at work, it can be the same Sunday to Sunday at church, that is until you miss. You know, you miss a few days at work, you miss a few classes at school, you miss a Sunday at church, and it seems like that's when something happens. Everybody's talking about what happened when you missed, so you have to, you know, ask your friend, what did I miss? Tell me, tell me. There are about 45 of us who are studying the book of Hebrews, and it's such a a rich study. That book was written to Christians who were going through difficulties, persecutions, and they were considering giving up on following Jesus. So the author spends 10 chapters kind of reiterating some very key truths about Jesus, and then challenges them in chapter 10, we need each other. It's essential. Our commitment and belief to Jesus is not a solo effort. We truly are in this together. It's a family. It's what the church is supposed to be. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. He says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as, I see, as you see the day drawing near. I read about a woman who never missed a church service, but one day she was forced to. She had surgery, and, and her recovery kept her at the hospital over the weekend. So, so several from church went to go visit her and to encourage her while she was recovering, and they were telling her about all that she'd missed on that Sunday. Now, she's there every Sunday, but that one she missed, when she finally saw the preacher, she said, wouldn't you know it, the one time I missed, you have a good sermon. There are a lot of reasons people miss. Sometimes there's health issues. We understand that. But sometimes priorities get scrambled. Sometimes the urgent screams so loud that we ignore the important. Sometimes our pain and discouragement trumps our faith in Jesus. Sometimes we believe the lie that we don't need others and others don't need us. We don't know what caused Thomas not to be there that Resurrection Sunday, but consider what he missed. Jesus appeared to the disciples and he was not there. If he'd been there, he would have seen it as well. And he would have been glad as well, but he wasn't there. He missed out. But not only that, here's our second observation I want us to note. Thomas doubted. This might be what you remember the most about Thomas. Why is he called Doubting Thomas? And why does that name stick? You ever thought about that? I mean, we don't call Peter sinking Peter. We don't call lying Abraham or deceitful Jacob. You know, we kind of move past that. But that Doubting Thomas seems to stick with him. Why is that? Is it fair to say he was asked to believe something? That was unbelievable. I mean, this was a lot going on. And he could have played along and said, sure, I believe. Yeah, whatever you say. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. And, And just played like he was there when down deep, he was not. Down deep, he was doubting. We call him Doubting Thomas, but what he wanted 
was the exact same thing that all the others had. A chance to see Jesus himself. I want to touch the scars. They had that. He wanted that. That's what he was asking for. But what I observe about him, and I want you to see this too, Thomas is honest about his doubts. Not only was he not there that Sunday, he wasn't there spiritually. I mean, he was having second thoughts big time. And he didn't pretend to believe something that he didn't. Now, we might not be that honest. We might come to church every Sunday and sing the songs and play along, even though in the back of our minds, down in our hearts, some of those question marks are getting bigger and bigger. But we may not address those or speak about those. And what happens, though, our faith gets challenged. Sometimes by unjust suffering, especially when it lingers on and on. Or maybe it's disappointment in a spiritual leader or another person who claims to follow Jesus. Maybe it's a peer who stopped believing. Or maybe it's a blog we read or an Instagram account that we follow and they're making some claims and making some statements that we don't know how to answer. And so it leaves us with questions and doubt and insecurities. We may not be able to deny our doubts anymore and our spiritual foundation crumbles. Thomas was in a dangerous state. Unbelief. That's what we see here. And we too might find ourselves there at times, but God is patient with us. God wants us to come to faith, true faith, genuine faith, not just nodding along with the crowd because everybody else in church and our family or our circle seems to be going with it, but that we can admit it, confess it, believe it for ourselves. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Let this encourage you. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, if we're completely honest, there may be times where we have second thoughts. Or we, like Thomas, doubt, or even don't believe, and we struggle with that. And we are especially vulnerable to doubt, if we don't know what and why we believe. If we've all just, whatever we've heard, we've just took it, swallowed it, and, and, and never really thought it through for ourselves, we may struggle. It's easy to think that, that doubt is the opposite of faith. But it's really not. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Maybe you had a strong belief at one time, and and it's soured or at least weakened because of trials or tragedies or difficulties you've experienced. Some feel like they can't believe the Bible and truly be an intellectual and study and be honest about it. But they've not had the integrity to go and truly search the claims for themselves. And the Bible is full of warnings. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. And Satan wants to deceive us and he does a good job of it. The Bible also warns us don't deceive yourselves. And we can do that as well. Thomas was not there on that resurrection Sunday. And that is key. And if you think about it, Thomas didn't know then at that moment what you and I know now. We know so much more than Thomas did at that moment. In our next series of messages, we're going to be talking about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and why we need to understand these and know these and let that be the bedrock of, of who we are in Christ, how fundamental they are. 
God became a man, born of a virgin. He healed the sick. He made the blind to see. He walked on water. He fed thousands. When he died, it was not for himself. And not because the plan didn't work. It was as a substitute for you and me. He arose bodily from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And today, he's sitting at the right hand of God. And if you've ever doubted any of those, you need to spend the time to go back. What does the Bible say? What is the claim? And do I believe that to my core? See, either we're crazy to believe these things, or they constitute the most incredible truths of Scripture, of mankind, of history, period. And we have to decide which one is it. In the little book of Jude, there's an admonition that we all need to hear. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. There might be somebody in your family. Might be somebody in your class. Maybe somebody you work with. It might be you. Have mercy with those who doubt. You know why? Because hundreds in this room this morning would testify, if you're patient with doubters, if you're patient with doubters, help them, pray for them, study. They can become the, the strongest believers of all time. And that's what we see in Thomas. Jesus was so full of grace to Thomas. I want you to see that as we go through this story. When Thomas told his friends, uh, when Thomas was told by his friends that Jesus had appeared to them, Thomas just instinctively said, no way. I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. But only eight days later, he became a dedicated believer. So we think of him, we call him Doubting Thomas, but I want to keep going with this story because it's not over yet. And now let's see three positive things about him. So number three, Thomas sincerely wanted to believe. Do you get that as you go through the story? He wanted to believe. Now, he didn't believe, but he wanted. How do we know that? Well, obviously, he was devastated at Jesus' death. They all were. All the disciples were. We read that in Scripture. So when his friends came to him and said, we've seen the risen Lord, his response was, no way. I can't believe that. And he left for good. No, he didn't. He didn't leave for good. Why? Why didn't he leave for good? There was something about Thomas. He was still hanging on. He was still hanging around. He hung around for a week. Why? Because deep down, he wanted to believe. What do you think he was doing during that week? Everybody's talking about, you weren't here. You missed it. We, we saw his wounds. Oh, you should have been here. He wasn't there. Do you think he went back to the women who were at the tomb and said, tell me about that? Now, now the cave was empty, but you saw angels, right? Tell me the story again. Do you think the two that were on the road to Emmaus, you remember that story? Luke tells us they ran back to tell the eleven that Jesus had appeared to them. Do you think he was asking them, now, now you, you said that when Jesus was talking, your hearts was burning, but how did you know it was him? And why didn't you know it was him to begin with? Tell me that story again. Let me ask you a question. If two people with the same IQ view the same evidence, one believes and the other does not, 
Why? Why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, a lot of factors, but a big one, and it may be number one, is desire. If you want to believe. Because desire influences objectivity. And there are some people who would rather not believe. Because if they believe Jesus, well, then they've got to change their life and start following him and his way. If they believe in Jesus, they've got to swallow the intellectual pride and say, Jesus is my Lord. If they start following Jesus and say, I believe in him, then now all their liberal friends are going to come and attack them. So they choose not to believe because they don't want to believe. And let's be frank about it. Most of us, we believe because we want to believe. It's like everything is pushing us in that direction and we just kind of jump on board. Now, there are some notable exceptions to this. Some come to faith against their will, you might say. And I think of like Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. I mean, he didn't want to believe. In fact, he was pushing the whole time. But he's an exception. But the evidence, when truly studied and examined, is overwhelming. And I believe that's how God is able to use Paul to write so, so vividly. So many wonderful statements of, of, of just clarifying who Jesus is because it worked for Saul. He saw Jesus. He became Paul. And then he could explain to others as well. But most people come to faith because in their soul, down deep, they want to hope. They want to hope that it's not just this life and it's not just this suffering. It's not just a job and making money. There's more to purpose. There's more meaning. And Jesus gives us that. They want to believe that one day we'll get to be with him in heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 through 22. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep or those who died. For as by a man came death, and by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and also in Christ shall all be, all be made alive. Do you believe that? Do you want to believe that? Well, here's another thing about Thomas. I think it was positive. Thomas kept searching. He gave himself the opportunity to believe. He desperately wanted to do what he could, so he exposed himself to the evidence. He stayed around. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. He wanted to believe, so he was there. Jesus' disciples had gathered, and Thomas was right there this time. Thomas went to the place where he was most likely to meet Jesus, to see Jesus. And if Jesus was going to appear again, he was not going to miss it this time. And that night, something special happened. Look at verse 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Don't you know they were all looking at each other? Cutting eyes, here it goes again. This is great. And what about Thomas? You think anybody was looking over at Thomas? And Thomas is looking at Jesus. His heart's coming out of his chest. It's true. And Jesus was so full of grace to Thomas. I love this. I hope you do too. He doesn't say, Thomas, I'm so disappointed in you. 
Why weren't you here last week? You missed it. You're out. He doesn't do that at all. He's so patient with him. Look at verse 27. He singles Thomas out. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. If you want to remove the question marks and at least put a period, if not an exclamation point, if you want to remove the darkness of doubt from your soul, you have to go to where the light is shining. You have to investigate who Jesus is. What are his claims? So you, you read books about him. You take classes from those who are able to teach. You spend your Sundays in worship. You associate with people full of faith because that's contagious. But above all, you search the scriptures. You get into the word. Know it for yourself. In the inductive Bible classes I'm teaching, I'll tell them from time to time, discover the truth for yourself but never by yourself. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. A few years ago, C and I were able to hear Lee Strobel tell his faith story. Lee Strobel is a brilliant man. He got his law degree from Yale. He was a, a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He considered himself an atheist. He thought this Christianity was just superstitious, but... Truth be told, he had never really investigated it. Then his wife began to follow Jesus. And he was so amazed at the transformation in her life that he had the honesty and the integrity to think, I I'm going to investigate this. And so for the next two years, he did just that. He said he investigated with more, more vigor, more detail than any story he had ever covered in his professional life. He said the evidence was so overwhelming, he gave his life to follow Jesus. So he quit the Tribune and he's written several books, like The Case for Christ. You've probably heard of it. Maybe you've got a copy of it. It's awesome. He's got so many books on apologetics. If you want to believe, then you go to where the light is shining. It's his word. And you read it for yourself. And you study it. What does the Bible say? One more thing I want you to see that's positive about Thomas. And this is key. Thomas decided to believe. Thomas made a choice. He made the intentional decision to believe. When he saw Jesus standing there in the midst, it was no hesitation. Jesus singled him out. Thomas, called him Thomas by name. You remember this, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You don't see Thomas here with his arms folded saying, now, I see you, Jesus, but I, I, want, to, I want you to do something. I want you to walk on water. I, I want to see a miracle. He doesn't do that at all. He humbly chooses to believe. Well, how strong was Thomas's faith? This doubting Thomas, really this unbelieving Thomas. That's a more accurate way. That's what most translations render it here. Well, when you study history, we learn that all but one of the apostles became martyrs, died for the cause of Christ. Tradition tells us that Thomas traveled to India to share the good news of Jesus in A.D. 52. A.D. 52, that's just a wee bit before Columbus and Magellan and Cortes. Can you imagine getting on a boat 
traveling across an ocean not knowing where you would go. Because of your belief that God was sending you with the good news. After 20 years of making disciples in India, he was martyred in the year 72. A local Hindu priest had finally had it and gave up, had him killed. He was speared to death in a cave near Chennai, India, because he chose to believe. He chose to follow Jesus. My daughter Marcy and I have been there. Now it's called Thomas Mount. These pictures are, are in that cave where he was speared to death. That stone is where, again, according to tradition, where he prayed and where he was killed. And although Thomas Mount, I was reading about this, is designated as only one of three national shrines in India, y'all, there's really not much there. There's a basilica that's built on the site where his body was originally buried, and it's small, very small, about the size of a two-car garage. It's very humble. Nothing really spectacular. But you know what is spectacular? Nowhere on Thomas Mount do you read Doubting Thomas. What's on that basilica over the doorway? It says, my Lord and my God. Thomas, who believed in Jesus and his way, his kingdom, his truth, enough to come and share the good news of others. I want to make sure we get this. For the most part, faith is a matter of choice. You either choose to believe or you choose not to believe. That's really what it is. And we see that in Scripture. Look what Jesus says to us, John 20, 29. Verse 29, first he says to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? And then talking to us, about us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We don't have the same kind of physical proof that Thomas had, no doubt, but we have equal evidence to choose to believe. There's a reliability of, of, of Scripture there's the dating of our calendar. There's the permanence of the church. There's the transformation of millions of lives. There's a dramatic answer to prayer. There's the fulfillment of prophecy. There's also the, the, the lack of logic for the alternative, the alternative. Do you really believe we came from nothing? And that there's, there's no purpose in life other than when you die, you, you die and it's over? Are you choosing to believe that? To me, the most convincing evidence is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Like Thomas. He saw him. He saw him, and it made such a transformational difference in his life. When Jesus Christ died, even his friends scattered, trying to save their own necks. They all did. But after the resurrection, they were all willing to die. Why? What is it about that that makes people just 180 degrees different? Men do not die for a cause they don't believe in. Look what Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So you 
have enough evidence to believe. It's just a matter of you making a choice. You either choose to believe or you choose to disbelieve. At what point in your life are you going to say, I'm convinced Jesus is the Son of God. When He died on the cross, it was to take my sin away. I'm going to give my life for Him because He gave His life for me. So I'll confess my faith that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll let Him wash me clean in baptism and give me the gift of His Holy Spirit. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. There comes a time where you have to decide, what do I believe? This morning, if you're ready to confess that you've decided to believe in Jesus, we'll help you with your salvation, whatever it is. If you need baptism, if you need prayer, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you? The Lord lift his countenance upon